Um, it's great to have uh, Willie with us, and we're really happy that you've joined us, and we're going to invite him to come and share with us just what the Lord's laid on his heart. Uh, we are praying for Canada, and uh, 7 o'clock on Monday evening is Willow One Prayer, and you know what I always say? Uh, the, the most important meeting of the month is Willow One Prayer. Uh, amen. So we like to get together and pray and to ask God to work and be at work and we'd love you to be there and we get Willie's going to be there. He's come specially uh, to visit the Okanagan but also to be with us at this prayer meeting and so that we can pray together for Canada. Uh, we've got an election coming up. I don't know if you've heard this uh, <laughs> and it's taking place and uh, and it's all happening at the moment, so we want to pray for that. We want to get engaged, and um, and even you know we've got the Canadian flag up, which is you know all for that. Um, so uh, praise the Lord. So Willie, come and share with us, and we want to welcome. Let's give him another warm welcome to Willow Park. Well, it is uh, so good to be with you. Uh, Phil and I started talking about this, I don't know how many months ago, but I said, if I come, I want to come when there's Willow One Prayer. So, of course, that tightens up the schedule a little bit, and uh, so I'm excited uh, to come uh, for the weekend, and especially for Monday night, uh, because I think it is so incredibly important, and I get so excited when our churches across the country are uh, focusing on prayer and taking the time to to pray, and as, uh, as he said, it's the most important meeting of the month. Uh, so special shout out to Creekside. Uh, so excited to be able to be with you and via video. And, uh, and so I just want to spend a, uh, say a special greeting to the Creekside congregation. I'm going to invite you all, uh, if you have a Bible, go to Ephesians. We're, gonna, we're going to um, spend some time in that wonderful book tonight uh, in a few moments. So let me just pray and then we're going to dive in. Father, I thank you that Each person here tonight is here because you want them here, whether they know that or not, because your word tells us that you are the one who draws us. It's your spirit who draws us. And you are that intentional, which also tells us that you have something that you want to say to us. And uh, and so I thank you for each person who is here, regardless of how they got here, uh, whether of their own will or the will of a loved one. But uh, I know you want to speak into all of our hearts tonight. And so I thank you in advance for what you want to say. And I pray that we would open up our hearts and minds uh, for the work of your spirit in us uh, tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A um, couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago, when I met Gwen, who is now my wife, we've been married uh, 27 years, 27 and a half years. And uh, I used to work for Youth for Christ in Winnipeg. I worked with high school kids uh, on high school campuses in winter and at the camp in summer, and Gwen was a volunteer uh, with the same group. And um, unbeknownst to the rest of our staff, you know, she and I had taken an interest in each other. And you know how it is when you have that first love, like how you will do all kinds of things that seemed incredibly logical at the time, but maybe not so logical, you know, 27 years later. Or when your kids are talking about doing the same things, they don't sound as wise. But, you know, it's first love. So we, we, you know, we had taken an interest in each other. And uh, we had one of these, uh, 
uh, YFC evenings, we're doing all these different events, and part of the event was we were at a skating rink with, I don't know how many, a couple hundred kids, and a bunch of the guys on staff and the volunteer leaders, they, were, they came over to me and they're bugging me and said, you, you should go over to her and you should, you should skate with her, like there was some kind of couple skater, I don't know what they were doing. And I said, no, guys, I can't, I'm too shy, I can't do that, that's just, uh, I can't, that's beyond me. So they were, they were egging me on, and I finally said, okay, I'll go do that. So I skated over to her, and like I said, they didn't know we'd been dating already. And so I skated over to her, and I said, just follow my lead. Skated over to her, took her, and I dipped her, and I kissed her. <laughs> and I looked over at the guys, and they were all... Like, what are you, are you crazy? <laughs> I skated back over, you know, really proud. And they also went, wait a minute. <laughs> I think we've been had. <laughs> but you know, when you're first love, like you'll do all kinds of stuff. And then we were dating and I moved away to Saskatoon to go intern in a church. And we weren't sure where our relationship was going. And, uh, and you know, we rang up back then, you rang up huge phone bills because it still costs money to call long distance. And so I charged it all to the church. Uh, <laughs> Because I was a poor intern. And, um, you know, I would do things like I'd drive to Winnipeg from Saskatoon uh, to surprise her for dinner. You know, you buy jewelry. And then when we got engaged, you know, I had an elaborate plan for the engagement. And um, being an unpaid intern, I bought the ring on Visa. How's that for good stewardship? <laughs> like I said, if my kids came to me now, I'd go, what are you doing? But it all seemed so logical at the time. Of course we would do that. Because it's first love. First love is passionate, it's energetic, it takes risks, right? It just consumes you. That's what first love is like. Then I think about when Christ became my first love. So I grew up in church. Uh, I always joke that I was probably taken to church before I ever even got home from the hospital. You know, my parents were very involved in church, my whole upbringing. Um, my dad was a lay leader in the church. He was the moderator or chairman at, at different points. He, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff, very involved in music. Uh, my mom was serving in all kinds of places. So church was, was part of our life. Uh, and I went to a Christian high school in Winnipeg. And, uh, you know, I went to kindergarten at the church. Like, I didn't have any choices. Church was going to be a big deal. But it didn't really take in my heart I was religious, very religious. I could give you all the answers, but I, I wasn't a Christ follower. I was just religious. Crazy thing after high school, how the Holy Spirit works sometimes. Um, the high school I went to, a whole bunch of the kids went to different Cape and Ray uh, schools around the world. Like probably out of uh, my graduating class would have been 60, 65 kids. I think about 25 or 30 went to different Cape and Rays. And um, we were doing a farewell party for a bunch of these kids one night. Uh, they were heading off to Sweden. And um, how the Holy Spirit works, and I didn't even know it was the Holy Spirit at the time, but I'm driving across Winnipeg, and I had no intention of going anywhere. I was going to university, and I had a job. And uh, suddenly the Holy Spirit got a hold of me as I found out in retrospect that that's what it was. And this incredible sense that if I did not take a step towards God immediately, I would be nowhere near God for many, many years. It actually terrified me. I was religious, wasn't a Christ follower. So I knew about God. I knew the stories of God. They just weren't personal. I got home and my parents had said, 
Um, if you want to, uh, like my older sisters, they said, you know, we'll pay for a year of Bible school somewhere. So I got home and I said, hey, Dad, is that deal still on? He goes, yeah, why? Uh, I think I'm going. The next day, I called up the school in Colorado. I said, do you have, they had started already. Do you have room? Yeah, we have room. Can I come? Okay, you can come. Went and quit my job, quit university, and got on a plane. I was there within 24 hours. For the next six weeks, I thought it was the dumbest thing I had ever done. It's a school of 55 kids on a mountaintop uh, by Estes Park, Colorado. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. There's no, no crowd to get lost in. But six weeks later, I had that personal experience of first love with Jesus. Everything changed. My life trajectory changed. My career trajectory changed that day. I went from being someone who, when I saw my friends get baptized, I said to myself, uh, I will never do that because I'm not going to stand and talk in front of the church. Not going to happen. After I became a Christ follower, the next Easter I was home, baptism at Easter, I'm like, sign me up. Couldn't wait to tell people what God had done. First love experience. So the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Written to the churches uh, around Ephesus. There's a whole bunch of churches not far uh, from Ephesus. Same churches you would read about in the book of Revelation. The letters to the churches in that area. Uh, I was there just uh, under a year ago. Uh, It's not more than a couple hours drive between any of them. But today, of course, in that day, if you were walking, it would be much longer. A couple of days between them all. Uh, But this would have been a letter that was circulated between those churches. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul's saying, these are the kind of people that are in these churches in these different towns. He said, you've been changed. You've had the first love experience. You've been changed forever. Your inheritance is guaranteed because of the amazing work that Jesus has done. And then he goes on in verse 15. He says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints... I have not not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This message is entitled, Churches That Change the World. A world-changing church is filled with people who love Jesus, who've had that first love kind of experience that's wrecked them. It's completely wrecked them. It's changed them. And Paul is saying that's what these people were In fact, they were so much so that he says that ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. You see, a world-changing church that is filled with people who love Jesus is the kind of church that is an encouragement to other people and other churches that that are far away from you. Now, here's something you don't know about your church. This church has been an encouragement to me for decades. This is the second time I've spoken at your church. The first time was at a college retreat in the late 1980s. 
Any of you there? <laughs> so a friend of mine was an intern here, and he, he called me up and said, will you come? We're doing, uh, I was at a church in Saskatoon. He said, will you come? We're doing a ski retreat. I think it was at um, Silver Star. And will you come and, and be the speaker for the weekend? Will you and your wife come? Uh, that was part of this church. But this church, and I've known the pastors who have been here ever since then, this church has been encouragement to me for over 20 years. And far beyond me. Because a church that's filled with people who love Jesus is an encouragement that goes far and wide. Far beyond a local context. And you don't even know it. That's the beauty of it. But that's the reality of a world-changing church. When people say, oh, I'm so thankful. Uh, I have a, a gal from our church moved out here to go to UBCO. And, uh, and her dad, right away goes, okay, where can we send her? What church does she need to connect with? And I said, well, UBCO is just down the street, basically. I said, tell her to come here. I said, I know Phil, great pastor, met some of the other pastors. I said, tell her to go there. I said, tell her to go there. And she's connected here. Uh, this semester, she's doing a, a co-op in Burnaby. But, uh, but she's connected here, loves it here. So I have the faith to send people here from Calgary because I know there's people here who love Jesus. Paul goes on then. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, another one of my favorite passages, he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, a, a world-changing church is a church that un, is filled with people, not just who love Jesus, but who understand their mission, and that is personally and corporately. This verse has always amazed me. I have a hard time even wrapping my brain around it. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And here's the amazing part. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the book of Jeremiah talks about how God knew us before he formed us. The intentionality of his formation of us as, as his children. But then he says there's things that he has ordained for us to do, not for someone else to do, but for you to do. They're not someone else's mission, they're your mission. And I believe he does the same thing with faith communities. There's things for Willow Park to do that he doesn't need anybody else to do, he needs this church to do. Why? Because of the kind of people he put in this church, the kind of heart he put in this church, the kind of gifts he's put in this church. A world-changing church understands that, God, that you have a God-given mission. Not just the generic mission of preaching and teaching and loving and caring. There is that. But I believe it is much more specific than that. Because God is that intentional. He's that intentional for you personally and for you corporately. Because that's how God works. That's the beauty of the intimacy of God. That's the beauty of how he speaks to us through the power of the Spirit. And how he creates a collective will that says, we must do this together. Because that's how he works. That's how he speaks through you as a community. He speaks through your leaders and, and that resonates in, in, in the rest of the community. You go, yes, that is something we must do. Not just because it's a good thing, but because it's a God thing for us and how God functions within us. See, church is never just church because God is so much more personal than that. 
He knows what's in this church. Here's the other beauty, beautiful thing about God in, in the fact that you are God's workmanship, created to, good, to do good things. I believe that God has given every single church everything it needs to do everything that God wants it to do. So when I travel the country, people go, you know, I'll go to a small church and they'll say, well, if we were like that church down the street and had what they had, then we could really do something. No, no, no. God has given you everything that you need to do what he has asked you to do. In fact, if you do what you think another church is supposed to do, you're actually making a mistake. You might be doing a good thing, but not a God thing. And all God is asking of you is to be personally and corporately is to be obedient to what he has asked you to do. I don't need to do what Philip needs to do. In fact, it'd be a mistake for me to do so. And vice versa. I just need to do what God's asked me to do. What he's called me to do, what he's gifted me to do. Because God won't test me against you. He'll just say, were you obedient? Did you do what I asked you to do? See, the problem with the human measuring stick is we think horizontally. We look to the left and we look to the right. We do it in economics. We do it in church. We do it in all kinds of things. God says our preoccupation is to be vertical first. That's where we get our marching orders, personally, corporately. Success is simply this, obedience. It's real simple. It's not easy to do, it's just re- but it's real simple. It's obedience. Did you do what the Lord asked you to do? Corporately, personally. Why? You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. Before this church was in existence, God knew that this day today would be here and had things for this church to do today. That's the beauty and the intimacy of God. A a world-changing church understand it's called for a mission and looks to do that with obedience. Then he goes on in Ephesians chapter 3. And he says, his intent, verse 10, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, God has a mission. What's the mission? Does he want to see the world changed? Absolutely. But there's another part of the mission that we don't even comprehend. Like I could study this verse, I think, for weeks and not fully comprehend the the statement, the manifold wisdom of God should be known, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through the church. So you have a very human mission. You have a mission to care and to preach and to teach and to love and to be generous, and all those things, right? That's impacting lives. You're going to India. That's wonderful. You have a mission in this city. You have a mission in this valley, and so on. But then there's this another piece he talks about that goes into the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. There are so many things about being the bride of Christ that we don't actually understand. But God says, when God's people who are passionately in love with Jesus, who understand the calling that he has on their lives, personally and corporately, it makes a difference in the heavenly realms. I think that's just absolutely amazing. I don't understand it fully, but I think it's unbelievable that we as human beings who are being faithful to the call of God in our lives can impact the heavenly realms. That's what he talks to us about. 
That's why when people say to me, and I have this conversation, I don't know how many times a year, they'll say to me, I love Jesus, but I, I don't have any interest in church. And I understand churches are fallible, churches mess up. I mean, when people tell me, you know, I found the perfect church, I, <laughs> tongue in cheek, I'll say, well, don't go there. Well, why not? Well, you're going to ruin it. <laughs> They'll be like, what do you mean? Well, you're human. You go to, if that church is perfect and you go there, it's, it's ruined. And they'll look at me like, what are you talking about? I said, well, every church is messed up because it's full of broken people. As a pastor, you know, 20 years ago, I, uh, my wife and I planted a church in Calgary, and I used to joke, I, uh, you know, I, there's a few things in this world I can guarantee you. There's not a lot, but there's a few things I can guarantee you. And I can guarantee you that I, as a pastor, will let you down. I know that's not very inspiring, but I can guarantee it. At some point, you will be disappointed in me because I'm human, because my flesh, my humanness will get in the way. I'll do something selfish. I'll do something rude. I'll do... I'll, I'm human. Right? That's the reality. So when people say to me, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, and I'll come back and say, well, I'm not sure you love Jesus. They'll go, well, what do you mean? Well, if you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves. What does Jesus love? He loves the bride. He loves the church. You notice nowhere in the Bible does it say, well, if church doesn't work, here's plan B. You know, if that doesn't work out, if Jesus never said, if that doesn't work out, let's try something else. Never an option. If you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves. He loves the bride. He loves the church. Is it messed up? Absolutely. Guaranteed. Does it make mistakes? Yep. Do people get hurt? Yep. But you put two people in a room and eventually they will hurt each other. They will offend each other. Because we're human. That's what we do. That's how it works. And yet, he says, that's the plan to show the reality of the kingdom of God to the world. And it makes a difference in the heavenly realms. Then we go to Ephesians chapter 3, one of my absolutely favorite verses in Scripture. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. More than we could ask or imagine. A world-changing church leads a faith-filled ministry. That's what a world-changing church does. It, take, it takes risks because it believes in obedience that the Lord is telling us to step out in faith. So 20 years ago, my wife and I planted a church called SunWest Christian Fellowship. We moved from Fresno, California, to grad school, to Calgary because we believed the Lord was calling us there. We'd never lived in Calgary. Uh, we landed there and felt this is home. And in 1994, in the summer of 1994, we got there uh, with two boys uh, in tow, almost four and almost two, and uh, started working at church. We didn't know anybody in town uh, other than one or two friends who were pastors there. Um, and uh, we just started praying. And, uh, you know, we quickly grew by 20%. We had a child. Right? Church planning, you can make statistics say anything. So <laughs> we had Matthew who joined us uh, that year. And we just started praying this verse over and over and over. Lord, you need to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine because we don't know what we're doing. We're in way over our heads. We have no idea. I don't know how many days I woke up and we looked at each other and we said, what were we thinking? 
how are we going to do this? And we just prayed, and God led us to people, and we had more people Uh, like Calgary was growing, so people would phone us up and say, hey, we have some friends moving to Calgary. We told them about you. Here's their phone number. We'd phone them up and say, come over for dinner. We want to share a dream with you. And the the first time we would meet them was when we're sitting down for dinner at our house. And it happened over and over and over and over. And in um, long story short, uh, the following summer, 1995, uh, in Calgary, everyone does a stampede breakfast. Okay, every church, every organization. If you come to Calgary during Stampede, you never have to pay for a meal because there's free breakfasts and often barbecues everywhere across the city put on by every organization, every church, every mall, every business. Uh, that's just how it works. Everybody's a cowboy in Calgary for 10 days. And then not again for the rest of the year. And, uh, and so uh, we said, well, let's put on a Stampede breakfast to sort of launch the church into the community. So we had a country band, which is, you know, the two kinds of music I hate are country and western. and It's a bad joke, but it's true. Can't stand it. But that day, loved it. And uh, we had pony rides. We had a, a group from MB Mission come and help us uh, do all the face painting. And then we did day camp following that. And, and, and uh, most of us who were doing the Stampede Breakfast had never even attended a Stampede Breakfast. Because we're all new to the city. And so we prayed and said, God, could you use this to sort of launch the church and get our name in our community? And so we set up, we hoped we'd feed over a thousand people because we've seen what other ones had done in town. Second weekend of Stampede. Well, beautiful day, people start coming and they start coming and they start coming and they start coming. And we ran out of supplies. Luckily, it was the second Sunday of Stampede. So another business nearby had a breakfast the week before. We ran over there and said, do you have anything left over? Yeah, we have Here's some sausage, here's some pancake mix. We took everything they had. We fed 2,300 people that day. And here, but here's the important thing that it did. We sat there at the end of that, as tired as could be, looking at each other, and we looked at Ephesians 3.20, and we thought, you know, maybe God can do more than we could ask or imagine. That's the seed it put in us. This silly event but that was the seed, and it changed how we thought. Launched the church that week or that September, 20 years ago. I preached at the 20th anniversary two weeks ago. Hundreds of people are there. Uh, story after story of people coming to Christ. Uh, the problem is, once the church got established, we quit praying that verse the way we used to. Because you start wanting to keep what you have instead of walking in faith, perhaps the way that God called you. That's the challenge with an established church. And that's what happened to us. What I miss is some of those early days when we would go in and when we hired our first associate pastor, uh, the second year in or third year in, and uh, he came to our first board meeting. And our treasurer says, here's the, uh, the financials. We have 37 in the bank. And he came from a large church in the Fraser Valley. And uh, he looked at me. He's kind of going, 37. So 37,000? Nope. 3,700? Nope. 370? Nope. <laughs> $37. That was our treasurer's accounting that week. That's what we have in the bank. He went home to his wife and he said, Suzanne, what have we done? We're crazy to come here. 
And the next day, so he's talking to me about this the next day, just completely panicked. And I said, don't worry, we'll be fine. We'll be fine, because we serve a God who does more than we could ask or imagine. Never missed a payroll, ever, in all those years. And God just started putting a thing into us going, we need to pray and ask more than we could ever, than we could ever think that God would do. But of course, as you get more established and more people, it's a bigger risk or it feels that way. But it's the same God. It's the same God. Does the same things, works the same way. Problem is he doesn't work the same way twice. Which Old Testament miracle happened the same way twice? Even the parting of the river didn't happen the same way twice. It was always a new way, always a new risk, always a new step. I don't know what he's asking you to do, Willow Park, but you serve a God who could do more than you could dare ask or imagine. And he's calling you to be a faith-filled church in those things. And then, verse 21 of chapter 3, glory to him in the church. Glory to him in the church. Right? In the church. And in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. You know, the other beauty of that is you tell the stories to your children and your grandchildren. This is what God did. And he did it then and he can do it now. One of the saddest things is to lose our memory of the great things that God has done. We have to pass them on and then our children need to live their own story and experience it again in their own way, the new story, again and again and again. Because that's what God wants to do. And yet the best is yet to come because we know that the glory, God will be glorified from generation to generation, as it tells us, forever and ever. Which is what we read about in the book of Revelation. We will all stand before the throne. And the kind of worship, no matter how good it gets here, I'm sure it's only 1% of what it's going to be like there. It will be amazing. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. How does God create these world-changing churches? A world-changing church celebrates the gifts God has given the church. Ephesians 4.11 It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So like I said, God has given Willow Park everything it needs to do what he's called you to do, which means he's given you the gifts that you need in the, in the people to do what he's called you to do, which means these gifts and others in Corinthians and so on are represented in this body. So what does this body then need to do like everybody, everybody? You need to discern the gifts, you need to train and equip the gifts, and you need to deploy the gifts. That's what's your job. The shoulder tapping. Who are the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the pastors, the evangelists, and all the other gifts listed in the other gift lists? See, it's the raising up, the recognition of, of that. I got my first chance to preach in my home church. I think I was, uh, well, i just become a believer. I was probably 20 years old. I thought I had this great sermon. I think it lasted seven minutes. I think I thought I had half an hour. I think it lasted seven minutes. And suddenly I realized I was done. I don't know if I did the whole thing again. <laughs> it was a terrifying experience. 
And yet a thrilling experience, but someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, we think God has a call on your life. My training, my undergrad training is business and, and economics. That's my undergrad training. I never intended to be a, a pastor. My oldest son is an introvert, and uh, he was in engineering, hated it, moved over to economics. And I said, I think God has a call on your life. Uh, and he, I said, maybe you'll end up being a preacher. He goes, not a chance. I said, well, you're an economics major. I said, that's what I was. Then he had this, he turned white. <laughs> I said, you never know what God's going to do. My youngest son came back to the Lord when he was 18 years old. And uh, right after that, he, um, he went on a trip to Europe. And, uh, uh, and as soon as he did that, about a month and so actually what happened, he was going to go to Europe with a party buddy of his. And then he decided, I told him, he said, you can't do that. And the first stop with his party buddy was going to be Amsterdam. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, you really can't do that. So once we, he said, okay, dad. So then he said to me, dad, uh, do you have any friends over there that I can stay with? I said, absolutely. I call up all my missionary friends in Europe and I'm texting them. You know, can Matt come and stay with you? Yep, no problem. So he's with this rabid missionary in Copenhagen, another one in Norway, and another one in Berlin, another one in Portugal. And uh, so I really set him up. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he's, he's, he's into the trip for about a month. All of a sudden I get this text. I think I'm going to end up in ministry. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I texted him back. You're welcome a lot. <laughs> and I've been watching because I, I don't know what God's call is on his life. Uh, but I know there's a calling, and, and it's slowly mo- we're slowly seeing it sort of being be, uh, un- unveiled. It's very exciting to watch. But I also pray for people around them. He's going to Bible college now. I'm praying for the people around them to tap them on the shoulder and say, this is what I see in you. Because it's not just parents. In fact, often at that age, parents, we have the least say. Right? It's the faith community. It says you lean into each other and go, you know what? I see this in you. As you pray for each other, you go, man, I think the Lord just sort of impressed on me that I need to encourage so-and-so with what I've seen in them. Write them the notes. Send them the letter, the email, the text. Tap them on the shoulder. Take them out for whatever it is. But you never know what it does to change the world because you're a world-changing church. But it comes in pulling out those gifts. And pulling out those gifts. It's so important to be able to do that. So a world-changing church is a church that recognizes those gifts and draws them out and functions in that countercultural way. A world-changing church also, as you go through the book of Ephesians, and actually if I'll just back up a sec, uh, how that plays itself out is also explained so well in Ephesians 5 and 6, which I don't have time to get into. But then you get into the nitty-gritty of life, right? Marriage and, and other pieces and developing the maturity of the body that the gifts do create when they work together. Then you go to Ephesians 5, or sorry, Ephesians 6, and a world-changing church recognizes that it is in a spiritual battle. It is in a spiritual battle. You know, we're in the midst of this election, and, of course, I come from Alberta. Alberta, we just voted in a um, NDP government. And, frankly, our whole, uh, our whole province is in, in political whiplash. 
They were all ticked off at the PCs. And so in reaction, this vote came in, and when the results came in, you just saw this collective gasp across the country, or across the province. And, uh, and so everyone's jittery in Alberta. Uh, you know, because we've been 40 years of conservative, sort of as our hallmark. And uh, now we have this national piece going on, and with all three parties being equal in the polls, like who knows what's going to happen other than probably a minority government. But you have this sense of unease across the country. The worst thing we can do as Christ followers is to think that we need the right party in power so that God's will can be done. You think God is limited to a political party? God is not that small. He is way bigger than that. And the reality is, regardless who's in power, God's purposes will be done, God is sovereign, and his plan will unfold the way he wants it to unfold. What are we told to be strong in Ephesians chapter 6? Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Be strong. That's an imperative, which means we have a choice to make. We can choose to put on the armor. And if I had time, we could, you know, unpack that whole thing. Well, what is the armor and how do we do that? But it is a choice that we make and it, it's, it is described so well in Ephesians chapter 6. But it is our peace to put that on and to take the imperative to prepare ourselves because our battle is not against flesh and blood. People are never the enemy. People are the ones that Jesus loves and died for, regardless of how difficult the interaction is. But people are never the enemy. And a world-changing church recognizes that. And finally, and it's only final because in Ephesians it comes at the end of the book, but it probably should be at the beginning. A world-changing church is a praying church. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Years ago, I was on a missions trip to Africa, and the missionary there was t- doing some teaching, and, uh, and she uh, said to us, if you remember nothing else, remember this. And I remembered this. Intimacy with Christ leads to passion for Christ, which leads to compassion for others. If you start with compassion, if you start with your heart and what tugs on your heart, you will do a good thing, but maybe not anything that God has asked you to do. You see, Jesus always spent time alone with the Father, and then out of that, he did his ministry, and he said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Intimacy with Christ, your time with God, personally, corporately, your prayer nights, your own time in the Word, journaling, or however you do it, gives you the heart of God so that you then do the will of God that he's created for you to do, Ephesians 2.10. Because again, as I said before, you only need to do the things that God's asked you to do. That's all that, that he wants from you. And I used to want to know what's the secret pill to these people. They'd come and speak in our church and go, oh, those great stories of God. How do I get to do that? And I go to the speaker afterwards. I go, so, okay, so what's the secret? It's like, what's the secret sauce? What's the, you know? And, I, and then they say, well, I spend a lot of time with God, you know, daily. I try to put in my routine. I read his word. I try to listen to the spirit and apply what he tells me to do. Yeah, that's great, but what's the secret? Next speaker. I do the same thing. A time and time. I'm a slow learner. Finally, after I don't know how many of them, 
I finally go, wait a minute, they're all telling me the same thing. See, the supernatural and spectacular of God happens, it's just like parenting. Quality happens in the midst of quantity. Right? When you have little kids, suddenly they ask you this profound question, you go, oh man, that was good. But it happened because you spent hours and hours and hours together, and a whole bunch of that was just normal. The supernatural happens in the midst of the ordinary. But it happens because you consistently spend time together. You can't go to your four-year-old and say, okay, son, let's have quality time. Do you have any deep questions you want me to answer? Do you have a lollipop? Right, because it's not the moment. A praying church understands. You build out of the heart of prayer and so much of the ministry that happens today, the world-changing that happens today is because of the prayers of the saints from the last decades. That's how that works. In the midst of that, amazing things happen. I wear these three reminders for prayer. One of these is my cancer prayer. Psalm 27, 13 talks about seeing the, the, seeing, uh, the grace of God in the land of living. It's from my, my, uh, one of my best friends growing up, his son Nathan, when he was 20, uh, 20 years old, 21 years old, inoperable brainstem tumor. Right? It's right back here. Because his vision started going and they got the brainstem tumor. I've been praying that. He's the same age as my oldest son. Nathan is now 25. Long story short, Nathan went through chemo, radiation, but uh, the doctors don't, like uh, 20-year-olds don't get brainstem tumors. That's what 10-year-olds actually get, and then you die. That's normal. 20-year-olds don't get them. Nathan got it. He was healed from it, both through medical, and then when they took the x-ray, when you have a tumor that's been removed, uh, there's always a shadow. You can always tell where it was. Not on Nathan. It's completely gone. Like completely gone. The doctors, when he went in for the scan, they, they, took, they took a very long time to return the scan because they, they couldn't believe they had the right scans. They thought they'd made a mistake from the before and after. I pray for a church plant in Montreal. City Church, downtown Montreal. It's a couple years old. It's running two services. A couple hundred people are going there in downtown Montreal. It's an English church plant. And I pray for our churches across the country with the C2C network, our church planning network, where we're seeing miraculous answers to prayer, and I can tell you about them on Monday night. But a world-changing church leans in in prayer. Last story, and I'm going to close. Uh, one of my favorite ones from our church. Uh, we were doing prayer meetings. Uh, we had a guest in from England, uh, and uh, we were, we've been praying for healing. And uh, this one gal who has, uh, she had endometriosis, uh, couldn't have kids, severe pain, young, young uh, married couple. She'd gone for healing, prayer, uh, nothing happened. In fact, that after, this was a Sunday morning, that afternoon she went and uh, she was in severe pain, worse than ever. That evening we have another service and she came, she didn't go for, for uh, prayer, she came to pray for others. And... Uh, and so she went there. We had the service, prayed for a bunch of people. She prayed for others. She goes home. Suddenly she realizes she has no pain. Her pain's gone completely. Here's the story. Here's the dots I want to connect for you. For months, God had been telling her in, uh, in service, he says, I want you to get on your knees during worship. And Christina's her name. Christina said, nope. Why? Christina's a proud gal. She's a very self-sufficient gal. She used to be on our staff. Very effective. 
great administrator, good leader. She refused. She realized that evening when she got home and all her pain was gone, that that night spontaneously she had, she had gotten on her knees and worship. Hadn't even thought about it. It was just a response to the heart of God, what God was doing. Twelve months later, I dedicated their first child. And they've had two more since then. You see, a world-changing church is filled with people who love Jesus and who respond to his call to obedience personally and then collectively together you do that corporately. And he has things that he's called you to do because you are God's workmanship. He's called you to live in that more than you could ask or imagine kind of faith. And then he's given you the gifts and he calls those out. And as you recognize this is a spiritual battle, so you count on the spirit and then you walk in prayer so that you hear his voice and obey. And then he does what he wants to do. That is so much more than we could ask or imagine personally and corporately. Will it be easy? No. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It wasn't easy for, for the disciples. So why would it be easy for us? But it will bring him glory and it changes things on earth and in the heavenly realms. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Willow Park is a world-changing church and it is built on decades, on years and years and years of people who love you and follow you. Father, I believe in this season there are things you have specifically for this body. And so, Lord, I pray that even as we gather on Monday night, to come before you, Father, that you would, you would give greater clarity in the hearts of the people of Willow, of Willow Park what it is that you want to use this body for, the place, its place in the kingdom. And Father, I believe this evening there are people here who are wrestling with obedience to the things that you have called them to, to step out in faith or to use gifts that they have not used or to step out in a risk in terms of ministry or to tap someone on a shoulder. Father, I pray that each of those people will take that step of obedience not for their own glory, but for yours. And because of that, history will be changed in that step of obedience and the sovereign plan that you have for the people individually and corporately of Willow Park. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.